going to talk today a little bit about preschool children in television. Um, I think thinking about the conference theme, when we talk about change, we're often thinking about how our audience is changing year on year. So what are children doing in 2015 that they weren't doing perhaps in 2014? But I think in doing that, we sometimes ignore a transition that's going on all the time that's really important, which is the transition that's taking place within this bracket itself. So we often lump together sort of naught to six, and actually within that bracket there's an awful lot of change going on um, and that's basically what I want to dig a little bit deeper into today. So I'm going to consider how young children between the ages of six change cognitively and socially. Um, so what does the science say for a start? But I'm also going to be drawing on my own fieldwork to consider how these small changes might relate to their engagement with television, their habits, choices, learning and sort of practices. I think in order to understand preschool children's transitions, we're going to also need to dispel a couple of big myths that exist about children and television. I'm going to try and think about the relevance of my research, perhaps to you as an audience, what can we learn from it, how might we act on it. It's all going to be based on two pieces of information. Firstly, I'm presenting today for the first time findings from my quantitative survey of 1,200 UK parents and also insights from some ongoing longitudinal qualitative fieldwork, um, which is with just 10 families here in Sheffield. I promise not to talk too much about methodology, but I think a few important things need to be said. Um, the first one is that I am going to be drawing on quantitative data, and that's the more developed of my research at this point. Um, but when I see charts like this in conferences, I often want to think, you know, well, what do the children look like behind that data? and they look a little bit like this. Um, I'm going to be talking about 10 families. These are all families that originally filled in the survey, and I then followed up, and I asked them more questions. And what I'm doing, actually, is spending six months with these families, visiting them uh, every month, um, to see how these children are changing and developing over that period of time. So the sort of work that I'm talking about is essentially developmental psychology, and that's traditionally been studied in a very specific way. So traditionally researchers will recruit children to come into the lab, um, and they want them to engage with, react to various things. And we've learnt a lot from this, and some of the theory I'm using today is based on that. But at the same time, I don't think it's the most useful way that we can study what real children's lives are like. And that's why I do this process of actually going into family homes um, and, think, and talk to the parents and, and spend time with the children. So the first topic I'd like to talk to you um, today, it's broadly, I would call, the move from glancing to watching. So developmental psychologists would draw on Piaget and models of cognitive <coughs> development. And they suggest that television, television viewing will increase as children get that bit older within this bracket because they're more cognitively equipped to do so, because they can pay attention to the screen for longer. And certainly lab-based studies do confirm that. Older children sat in front of the TV will pay more attention to the screen for a longer period of time. But, and, and the video clips that I'm going to be showing you later will also confirm that. Young, older children within this bracket can pay attention for longer. But I don't think that's really fully telling the whole story. So to start looking at some of the results of my survey, the first thing we can see is that live TV still dominates. Um, when we asked all of the parents across the 0-6 brackets how long their children spent watching television on the TV set, 88% said their child watched some TV every day, with 63% saying their child watched one hour or more. 
Um, playing digital games was also really important, so 60% play some every day. And watching catch-up or on-demand TV on the TV set was also a really popular choice, so 43% did that every day. But, uh, but as I said at the beginning, um, preschoolers aren't a homogenous group. And when we start to break that down, we can see that children at the top end of the spectrum are actually less likely to spend a lot of time watching live TV. So a third of our six to six and a half year olds rarely or never watch live TV. The younger end of the spectrum were much more likely to spend a lot of time watching live TV. This finding might seem a little odd, maybe, given that we've said older children's cognitive ability means they can pay attention better. And I think the problem here is that conventional studies ignore the reality of what watching television actually looks like for preschool children. So I asked another question, which was, how often is a TV on, even if no one's actually watching it? And a whopping 40% of parents said that children aged 0 to 6, the TV was on most or all of the time. Um, and when I broke this down by age, it didn't actually hugely vary. So the TV tended to be on a little bit more in houses with younger preschoolers, but it wasn't a big difference. And I think this is to do with the fact that actually whether the TV is on or not is more of a decision that the parents are making. A lot of the times, realistically, it is about that adult decision. So in order to, to understand what's going on, I think we need to bust our first myth, which is watching TV is a sedentary activity. So we have a picture here from uh, one of my studies. This is Niat. She's three years and four months, and she's watching Balamori here on her bicycle. Um, so she was zooming in and out of the room whilst occasionally glancing at the television. Earlier this year, I went to an academic debate about children and technology, and I sat through a presentation from a health psychologist talking about um, interventions for sedentary um, behaviours in children. And I was repeatedly told throughout this presentation that watching television is a sedentary occupation. Both my survey and my observations really dispute this. But it's nevertheless a pervasive myth and one that clouds our understanding of what watching television looks like in a very basic way. When we talk about multitasking, other things going on while the live TV's on, I think we tend to think a lot about multi-screen activity. And my survey definitely backs up the fact that that's happening. But at the same time, the thing that I find equally, if not more interesting, is everything else that's going on at the same time. So actually, when we asked parents, what does your child do when they watch TV? The most important thing that came out was 82% of parents said that their children talked to them about the programme. 76% said that their child danced, which is a huge amount, um, and 75% said that they would sing. These activities um, contest the notion of sedentary TV viewing. They're activities that are clearly physically and cognitively very stimulating. And I've started to break down these activities then by these very specific age bands. And although it's still early days in my analysis, I think the pattern is starting to emerge, that there are some activities that younger preschoolers are much more likely to engage in. So, for example, younger children are much more likely to talk to the characters on screen. The younger preschoolers were also more likely to do things like singing while they watch television. And then we get this slightly odd pattern here with um, children who are acting out the story. So a slightly odd pattern decreasing until we get to the age of six, six and a half, when that happens a lot more. 
Um, I think that's maybe related to something about narrative, which I'm going to move on to talk about. Um, okay, so the qualitative work I've done has kind of backed up some of these trends. We are seeing, well, I am seeing a gradual transition from glancing to watching associated with this age, this movement through the brackets in the preschool bands. But it's complicated, and I think I have to stress that it's different for every child. Every child has a different journey with media. Um, older preschoolers show increased interest, definitely, understanding and engagement, particularly with the narrative on screen. Younger preschoolers, I've found, aren't at the stage where I think they're cognitively ready to be able to fully engage with narratives. But I think it's really important to stress that just because they're not doing that yet doesn't mean that television isn't influencing them in really important ways. And I think it has a huge impact on their play and learning and aspects of TV pop up in really unexpected ways in their everyday practices. Part of the reason I wanted to show you those clips in particular is I think it really demonstrates this gradual transition um, from what I would call glancing to fully engaging and watching. Um, the first girl in the clip, Niat, um, she was watching Tinga Tinga Tales. Um, and as is so often the case, she'd been dipping in and out of engaging with the TV all morning. Um, what she'd also been doing in that time was playing on her tablet. She'd looked up some Peter Rabbit clips on the computer. Um, she'd drawn some pictures for me. She'd had a snack. And as you saw before, she'd ridden her bicycle around the living room. Um, so she was doing all of these additional things. But when Tinga Tinga Tales theme tune came on, Niat was colouring and her face immediately lit up. And as, as the theme tune came on, Tinga 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 Tales from Africa, she looked up and she said, joined in on the cat part of Africa. And then she looked at me and she looked at her mum. Um, she continued to colour a little bit later on. Um, and then the... Um, Dance of the Horns came on and Tinga Tinga Tales and it, again she was immediately inspired to jump up and start dancing around um, with her mum sort of echoing some of the words in the background of the theme tune that they obviously knew and shared together. Um, the second clip is Olivia. She's um, a similar age to Nia, three years and seven months and she'd been playing with her toys telling me all about the plasters in her toy doctor's bag. The bag itself is covered in Doc McStuffin stickers, um, but the CBBS was on in the background and we were watching Third and Bird. A moment towards the end, a character called Mrs Billingsley starts singing because she can see shooting stars. And that's the moment that you see just there, where just for a minute, she's kind of captivated by what's going on on screen. And then almost seamlessly sort of continues with the playing with her, with her toy doctor bag. Um, and you can see the difference a lot when you look at Rosie, the third child. Um, she'd been playing on the iPad in the morning, but she'd actually asked that we put the TV on. I think she was getting a little bit tired. Um, when children get to these older stages, like Rosie, you can see that they're beginning to really follow the narrative, and she could talk to me confidently about what had happened on screen afterwards. In contrast to the other two, she was sitting on the chair, and she's watching very attentively to the clangers. Um, but when I tried to gauge her understanding of the plot later, assisted by her mum, um, what, it got a little bit too much and you know you can see Rosie bursting out let me watch television so I think this frustration is really built up and um, linked up with this idea of a desire for narrative a desire to follow what's going on um, that is linked to that specific stage actually after the show um, I asked Rosie about it and she said that she wasn't sure about the clangers but it, it was really hard to get to the bottom of, of why and this is something I'm seeing more and more with Rosie um, so on another visit, we'd been watching Mr. Tumble, and she said that it was babyish, but then continued to watch the whole episode really attentively. So I think there's something interesting going on there about that very specific transition. 
I've been trying to consider a little bit about how this might be useful information for you as an audience. What can we take from it? I think the first thing to say is that it reconfirms some comments that were made here last year about the continued importance of live TV, um, particularly for preschool children. Um, but it also complicates the notion of what actually looking at TV is all about, what watching TV is. So the top three multitasking activities were actually talking about the show, dancing and singing, and it's really important finding that backs up this notion that watching television on the main set is actually an active pursuit, um, both cognitively and physically. Multi-screen activity is going on, but not as much as these other forms of multitasking. And the other important point is that for older preschool children, they have a need for this strong narrative in programming. But as we see with Rosie, the transition she's going through is complicated. There's an increased desire to follow the narrative and frustration at me interrupting, but she's also becoming increasingly frustrated and critical at programmes actually aimed at that age bracket. Okay, so the second theme I'd like to consider today is about the social context of consuming television-related media. Developmental psychologists pay little attention to these shifting social contexts, largely because television is repeatedly characterised as a solitary pursuit. I think social aspects of viewing are really important. Um, in particular, my case studies deal with families living in lower socioeconomic status um, communities. And academic studies frequently highlight that there's this link between lower SES and poor literacy. Studies about traditional literacy show how, so book reading essentially, show how this interaction with parents can have a really important and positive impact on children's learning, regardless of social class. But I think there's a double standard here because we don't really look at social interaction so much in terms of literacy around technology. And I think that's because of this presumption that watching television is an inherently solitary activity. Along with lots of other academics, I believe that any exposure to people or language can pr present a potential opportunity for learning. So I think this is where we need to bust our second myth, which is that watching TV is a solitary activity. And here we have Harry, who is three years and nine months, mm -hmm. and he's chosen to watch Bell on the Go on YouTube with his mum and his cousin Kyle. Actually, my survey findings suggest that parents spend a significant time watching with preschoolers. Parents of younger preschoolers, in particular, spend a lot of time watching with them. 77% of parents with two and a half to three-year-olds watched an hour or more with their children every day. But this begins to decrease slightly as we move up the spectrum. So um, when we get to three to three and a half, that goes down to 67%. And when we get up to six and six and a half year olds, it's more like 40% of parents watching with them for an hour or more a day. Echoing that last slide then, older preschoolers were much less likely to watch live TV set <coughs> with an adult. But at the same time, as they gradually grow, preschoolers more and more likely to watch television instead with another child, so either a sibling or a friend. Clearly preschoolers don't watch in a social vacuum, and this social context is important and potentially useful, but again, I think it's complicated. The quantitative work shows how children's social interactions gradually change as they get that little bit older, and the qualitative work I've been doing has really raised some additional questions. I think around what we consider really to be social, what, does, what do we even mean by social? The next step I'm going to show you is quite a complicated one. 
Um, it's Harry again from the picture, um, and he's playing, playing on the Nina and the Neurons game on the CBBS Playtime app with his mum. The interaction in the clip represents very traditional social learning techniques. So something we would talk about as being scaffolding. Um, Harry's learning is being scaffolded by his mother, allowing him to make more progress than he would be able to on his own through her assistance, her pointing, her talking, her guiding. At the same time, it's important to note that that was actually quite a rare moment in Harry's household, where it's much more common to see everyone in the same room using different devices at the same time. And I'd argue that there's also an element of social support and learning going on in that context. What the qualitative work's beginning to reveal is that we might have been asking a slightly unfair question when we asked parents to say how much time they spent watching TV with their children. A lot of the time what that really looks like is maybe mum in the kitchen shouting in or a child coming and telling them about the show afterwards. Um, so 83% of parents in the survey said children would talk to them about the programme that they were watching after it had actually happened. So I think that there are benefits there, even if the parent's not physically sitting down watching with a child. As preschoolers get older, we see more complex social networks of peers developing. And social elements of this might be, for example, co-constructing play with a friend based on mutual experience of a TV programme. So Harry's preschooler cousin, Kyle, spends a lot of time at Harry's house, um, and he's really excited about Minecraft, but Harry's not into it. So Kyle actually spends a lot of time playing with other children outside the family based around the idea of Minecraft. I think attention needs to be paid to these home literacies, what and how children communicate and learn at home. I went into my fieldwork thinking a lot about the transition to school. But I think that what's really important here is that I've realised children's lives are already really socially complicated even before they start going to school. And we need to start paying attention to the complex and multiple ways that children learn and communicate with an evolving array of other people, both parents and peers, and both during and after watching the television. And finally today, the last theme I'd like to talk to you about is um, quite a complicated one. It's the sort of relationship between reality and fear. So a lot of developmental psychologists are really worried about television because they think that children can't make these distinctions between fact and fantasy. Um, certainly Piaget in theory holds that children in what they call the pre-operational stage, so two to seven, can't distinguish between reality and fantasy. Children then are said to receive me messages from the television. If they watch something violent, it might make them violent or scared. If they see something racist, it might make them racist or else oppressed. Or if they watch junk food on TV, it will make them immediately want to go out and eat that. Sociocultural theorists maybe offer us something useful here, because they show us that children can actively construct their own interpretations of television. And this is something that I think is going on even in these very young preschoolers that I've been spending time with. Um, in particular, Mika Neva, um, who's an interesting writer, said that children consume advertising independently of the product that's being marketed. Yeah, sorry, myth-busting. Number three, young children can't make reality judgments about television. So this is a little girl called Emma, um, and she's here reenacting the Money Supermarket commercial. Um, yeah, in the qualitative work so far, um, I found that, in fact, um, even younger preschoolers can actively construct their own interpretations of TV. Um, they can understand this relationship between reality and fantasy by making modal judgments based on the nature of the programming. There are modal signs that they pick up on. I also think there's a really important relationship between reality and fear and that this changes as children get a little bit older. So in the first clip, um, 
I'm really interested in Emma's sort of sage comments at the end. They demonstrate that she has a, this intrinsic understanding of the purpose of advertising. So when she says they want you to go to that supermarket, she might not understand that money supermarket isn't really a supermarket, but she can, she can already at this age understand the intention behind a piece of programming like that. Um, the second thing that I'm really interested in is the way that she's kind of, as Mika Nova says, she's kind of repurposing the advert for her own play. Um, and this behaviour is something you see equally she will do with nursery rhymes that she listens to on the iPad. She'll get up and sing and dance in exactly the same way. Um, so I think what she's doing is reappropriating something which is a, an adult sort of source as, as an opportunity for play. Um, the second clip, Rosie's there watching Topsy and Tim. And again, it's really hard to get to the bottom of what's going on here, apart from the fact that she clearly needs the toilet. She's also very afraid of... Well, she says she's afraid of Topsy and Tim. Um, and I'm not sure what she means is necessarily fear, but something that's been coming out more and more with Rosie is that as she's got a bit older, she is starting to make... She's aware of these modal sort of qualities to television. She knows that it's real, and she knows that Topsy and Tim is a little bit more real. And when she watches these sort of live-action, more sort of emotional, uh, realistically... Um, programs, she starts to get quite sort of upset and slightly uh, troubled by it, and it's something that she talks to her mum about. Um, and I think that it's something that needs a lot more research. But I think that older children within this preschool bracket are starting to sort of feel that the implications of re realism, really, in a much more sort of intrinsic way. Um, and whilst I think that that is. Um, maybe frightening to programmers that it's going to have this impact. I also think that maybe it means perhaps we can afford to take more risks. Um, starting to pay attention and take real emotions more seriously um, but it also that's a natural part of development and I'd argue that it's an essential part. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you.